Go ahead and take your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 2. We'll continue our little series from Matthew. And this morning we're in chapter 2, 1 through 12. Let me read the text and then afterwards I will pray. Matthew chapter 2. I think I'm on. I'm on. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judah in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Verse 4. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him, In Bethlehem of Judah, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel." Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. And when you have found him, report to me, so that I too may come and worship him. After hearing the king, they went their way, and the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star... They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. After coming into the house, they saw with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. Lord, we continue to exalt you to worship you, Lord. And now we pray that you would give us faith, give faith that uh, for those that have no faith and for we that have faith, increase our faith. For your word says, faith comes to hearing, hearing the word of Christ. And so we pray this morning that your word would grant us more faith to know you and to follow after you. For Christ's sake, amen. I must confess this morning, I'm a little bit mad at Brett this morning. I don't know how he did it. He's very clever. He must have snuck in to my office this morning or last night when I wasn't looking and read my sermon notes. How'd you do that? Right on the top of my notes. You can come read my notes. It says, Christ is born... Indeed. My plan to start the sermon was to say, Christ is born. And then just to wait. Christ is born. Christ is born indeed. indeed. I have that written on my notes. <laughs> so I conclude that God and his providence wanted that to be an emphasis. Praise God that Jesus is our Savior. He died on the cross and there could be no redemption unless... Our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, died, but for him to die, he had to be born. 
And the passage that we have this morning is about his birth and even a little bit beyond his birth. And we see these responses in verses 1 through 12 that people make. We make a response when we say Christ is born. Christ is born indeed. It's a type of joyful celebration and even confirmation in our own hearts about this miraculous, wonderful event. And so we do desire to to respond to this birth of Christ. But there's one or two ways, not just verbally, but we can reject the birth of Christ or we can receive who he is into our hearts. And when we say the birth of Christ, we're saying the the birth of the newborn king. Christ means the Messiah. That is the prophet, the priest, and the king. That's even why it says in chapter 2, verse 6, out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And then verse 7, read right after that, Herod seeks the, the Magi, and he wants to gather information from them. So this morning, the question is, as we look at this passage, will you reject Christ or receive Christ? And you may say, I've already received Christ. Jesus is already my Lord. Well, then Scripture says, therefore, since you have received Christ as Lord, walk in him. And so for those of us that know Jesus, we seek to continue to walk in him by faith, growing in him. So much so that our own lives will be this type of a living nativity scene of the Lordship of Christ in our own lives. Now, before we look at our text this morning, please remember that the first half of chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, is basically saying that Christ, humanly speaking, is in the kingly line. Jesus is king. And then the second part of chapter 1 is saying that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, that he's divine, he's the savior, he's also king. And then this morning, chapter 2, 1 through 12, we're going to see two main responses. Those that reject him and those that receive him. And the ones that receive him may not be the ones that we would normally think would receive him. It's the non-kosher people that receive Jesus. It's the religious people that reject Jesus. First, then, we're going to look at the first question. Do you reject Jesus Christ, king, born as king and born to be king? Do you see Christ as king as a threat to your power, your position, your plans, your very personhood? So then you reject him. When we look at our passage, there's at least three characters, one person, uh, two different groups that, that reject Christ. There's Herod, there's Jerusalem, and then there's the theologians and pastors, if you would, that, that reject Christ as king. First, let's look at Herod. You can see in verse 1, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, in the days of Herod the king. Now, who was Herod? You know of him somewhat. Herod was here the, the great Herod, the, the big Herod. He was very cruel. 
He was also a master builder. He built Masada and was very instrumental in having the temple rebuilt. But he was very cruel also. He, for example, killed his father-in-law, his brother-in-law, a wife, two sons, and 300 officials. Was he a full Jew? He was only half a Jew. I think it was his mother that was Jewish, and he was related to to Edom. This is Herod the Great. In some ways, a, a brilliant man, smart in terms of maybe like being an engineer, but very protective of his power and his position. In fact, it was the Romans that installed him, and when he was installed, they pronounced him that he is king of the Jews. That's how Rome at least manipulated him and Israel. See his response in verse 3. The Magi arrived, and they're going around in Jerusalem. And when it says saying, it's the idea, not that they just said one time, but it's this repeated saying over and over again. One, the end where it says saying. It's the idea that they are in Jerusalem, going around, maybe asking the, the different people on the street, the, the different storekeepers, so where's the Messiah? Because we see the star and the star and Bethlehem. So where, can you tell us? about this Messiah, and how do we get there? And so, it gets to Herod, and you can see in verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. What's the idea of being troubled, if you're troubled? Here, the idea, the Greek idea, is that you're, you're panicking. You're disturbed. Even you're, you're shaken. Verse 3 even says, all Jerusalem together with him. Why? Well, you can keep looking. Just look above in verse 2. These magi are saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Where Herod was pronounced what? King of the Jews. (laughs) So now these officials... It's probably more than three, and that's just three solitary people, but probably the Magi had many people with them, a big group of foreigners that some degree would have presented other countries, all of a sudden are in Jerusalem and saying, where is the newborn king? To the one that was pronounced king, but who was only half Jewish. And not only that, but at the end of verse 2, they're saying, we've come to worship him. So then Herod is not a stupid man. At least in terms of the world, he has an inkling as to what could be going on. And so he is troubled. He's also troubled. We can gather from that day and age and culture that he's troubled if Rome some king of the Jews, and somebody else is in town that's being born that is king of the Jews, and people are going to worship him. Well, you're supposed to worship Caesar, and this other person is king, and he knows the Old Testament to a degree. Well, something's going on. And so he is beginning to panic. 
And you can tell he's going to panic because if you just read verses 13 all the way down to the end of verse 15, 16, all the way on down, he panics so much that he wants to have all babies within a certain age murdered and killed. You see that in verse 16. Even verse 16, he becomes enraged. If you look at verse 4 of chapter 2, he wants to have this emergency meeting. So he gathers together all the chief priests, scribes of the people. That is, those religious Jewish leaders that really knew the Bible, that really knew their Old Testament. And he's asking them, where is this Christ? Where is the Messiah? What does the Bible say? Where is to be born? Bethlehem, Bethlehem, you see that in verse 6. In verse 7, then Herod calls this clandestine meeting, secretly he calls them Magi, and he wants to know the exact time the star appeared so he can find out how old then this Christ child should be so he can know what? Who he should kill? What baby should he kill? What family should he silence? He wants to know the age of Messiah so he can deal with him. You can see that in verses 12 to 13. In verses 12 to 13, it talks about the angel of the Lord appears to Joseph and says, get up, take the child out of here. You guys got to get away. Because Harold's going to do something devious and diabolical. When I think of Harold, do you know what, Herod, do you know what character I think of in books? You should know. And Return of the King. Deniathor II kind of reminds me of, of Herod. He, Deniathor was a steward of the true king that was to come. The true king of Gondor would have been Aragorn. But when Aragorn came, Deniathor wanted nothing to do with that king. He was just a steward. But he wanted actually to have that power and that position. Very similar here to, to King Herod. Herod was just a steward that was installed. He wasn't the true king. He could have ruled with wisdom and righteousness, peace, and been a blessing to the people and the servant of God. He could have been, well, not an under-shepherd, a, a true steward, a, a true king underneath the one true king. But yet he rejected Christ, and he wanted the power and the position for himself. If he would have bowed the knee, if Herod would have bowed the knee to Christ, he could have ruled over angels. Is he ruling over angels this morning? Herod is in hell, and he will suffer forever and forever. He could have ruled over angels. A sad figure. But also, look at Jerusalem. Look back at verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him. I can understand that Herod the king was troubled. You know, he has, this, he has power, a type of popularity, position, glory, money, anything he wants. I could understand mentally him being 
I, I can lose all of this because of Rome. I can lose all of this because of Christ. But Jerusalem, this is regular, everyday people. They also are troubled. They also are going to panic. They're alarmed. They're, they're freaking out. There's a newborn king and people want to worship him. And they're from hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles away. What's going on? In fact, this word word where it says troubled, it's used in the book of Acts. You know, when there was the prisoners, I think it was Paul, and there was an earthquake, and the prison guards thought that they had escaped. They were still in their cells. And it talks about the prison guards were really disturbed, really panicking, really fearful, because they thought that they would be executed. They were freaking out. That's the same word in verse 3 when it talks about trouble. King Herod, and here, all Jerusalem, that means all different kinds of people in Jerusalem, the, the, the shopkeeper, and a teenager, maybe a religious guard in the temple, they were all freaking out with, with this news. What's the news? There's a newborn king of the Jews, and people have come to worship him. these people in Jerusalem be so troubled? I, I think because, similar to Herod, not the exact same, but similar, if there is a new king, apparently the true king, and all these foreigners have come to worship him, what then is Rome going to do? What's Rome going to do? Rome could come in and seek to wipe us out. Things could get very intense. We, we know about the prophecies, Genesis 3:15, even Genesis 48, you know, Isaiah 53, so many different places in the book of Psalms. We know about all these prophecies. Perhaps they knew Micah 5:2. But then these counselors, the, these the magi counselors of the kings are here, and they're here to, to worship this newborn king. Wasn't Harold installed the king and he was pronounced king by Rome? Then if somebody else is saying that this is the true king of the Jews and people have come to worship him, that could be, at least people are saying it's the Messiah. What's Rome going to do? Rome could come and wipe us out. So I think we could gather from this that they were more concerned about their safety than the Messiah. They were more concerned about peace than they were the kingdom of God. They valued ease more than Jesus Christ. Are peace and safety more important than knowing Jesus Christ? Jesus in his own ministry said, if you have to follow me, pick up your cross. That's not ease. <laughs> there was one sense taking refuge in Jesus is peace and safety in him. But there's another sense and what's often there's a cost to follow Christ. And apparently, many in Jerusalem were not willing to count the cost. There is a third group. Look at the religious Jewish leaders. And we see this in this passage at different places. You can see it in verse 4. Herod calls the priests and the scribes of the people... 
And his question is, where is the Messiah going to be born? Verse 5, they give a biblical answer, right? They give a biblical answer, and it's accurate, and it's truthful. And they say Micah 5.2, and they quote Micah 5.2. The, the Bible says, in Bethlehem. And this person, this Messiah, he's going to be one that has authority. You see, it says ruler, and it's also it's going to shepherd my people, Israel. He is the pastor, and he's going to be the potentate. He's going to be the Messiah, the, the anointed one. They give a right answer. But what happens to them? What happens to these religious leaders, these scribes and priests, these Pharisees? Are they ones that follow Christ? You know, when you look at this passage, there's nowhere in this passage where they apparently talk to the Magi or ask Harold, Harold Kent, do you mind if we go with the Magi? We can go with the Magi to determine really if this is a Messiah or not. If he is, we, you know, we need to rejoice and repent and get right with him and prepare our hearts. But we also need to know if, if it's not. It's, we need to investigate the matter because we are under shepherds of Israel. That's our duty. Is that what the chief priests and scribes did? Apparently not. Could it be that they too are valuing peace and, and safety and position and power? Why didn't they go? Shouldn't they have been there? You know, you can read uh, Luke chapters 1 through 3. We've seen Matthew 1 through 3. Uh, apparently, when, the, when Christ is born, there's no Pharisee there. There's no scribe there. There's no priest that's there, though there are some priests that were waiting for him. You see that in Luke, but none were there when he was born. The scribes and these Pharisees were religious and they gave the right answer, but they weren't right in their heart with the Messiah. They weren't right in their heart with God. You can be hyper-religious and yet not have a relationship with God. Because you don't know Christ. They were substituting religion and their power and their position over a relationship with Christ and his power and his position. They were in a passively rejecting Christ. Now, having seen these three different groups, two brief questions. Two brief questions to ask. Why have you not come to faith in Christ? I know most of you know Christ, but some of you do not. Why have you not come to faith in Christ yet? We mustn't be like Herod or these people in Jerusalem or these religious leaders who were substituting knowing about Christ for knowing Christ. You can know about Christ... And not know Christ. John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That all the ones who are believing in him will not perish but have everlasting life. When it says believing in him. It's not the idea of understanding or agreeing that he exists. 
but it's the idea of taking refuge in him, trusting in his power and his position and his life and his death and his resurrection to be saved. Do you have that kind of faith? Will you entrust yourself to his care? A second question is this. Have you taken pride in your religious devotion? Certainly these scribes and priests did. I think we know enough about the people of Jerusalem at this day and age and people in general and religion to know that people can be very religious. People can grow up in the the Christian realm and yet not know Christ. People can read their Bibles and carry their Bibles and memorize verses like these priests and scribes did and yet not know Christ because they're devoted to their work. One can be devoted to their devotion and yet not be saved. We need to be like the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3.3 that says, He has no confidence in the flesh, but he glories in Christ Jesus. That's truly what we need to do. There's no power in human devotion to overcome any sin. There is power in knowing Christ. Philippians chapter 3, 7 through 10. So the first question was, have you rejected him? Maybe you haven't said with the words or in your mind, I reject Christ. But if you don't receive him, then you are rejecting him. There's no in between. You either receive him or reject him. So then secondly, have you received Jesus Christ? Do you see Jesus Christ as king and so price him above all things? Do you see him as infinitely valuable? And in order to expound on this, we're going to look at the Magi. At the Magi. Who are these Magi? We can see them throughout this whole passage. In verse 1, they're from the east. Well, it doesn't say specifically where in the east. Could be most likely Iraq, Iran, that area. Could have been China. I know it had to be India. That they're probably probably one of them is from India. Maybe, but someplace there in the east. But let me just give you a few points about these magi, and then we'll look at ourselves through the magi. Who were they? Well, number one, the Bible doesn't say, and it doesn't say there were three. There are many songs, and in tradition, there were three wise men, but it's probably because there were three gifts. If you look at verse 11, they gave gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And all of these are valuable for different reasons. Frankincense could be used in a very medicinal way. It was very valuable. They could all be valuable in some way. And so there were three groups of gifts that were given to the Messiah. But it doesn't say that there were three wise men. Uh, secondly, it doesn't say that there were wise men. The ESV translated translates this word as wise men, but the Greek says basically M-A-G-I. Magi. If you want to, you can say magi. And even we get, what English word do we get from magi? Magician. So 
though you probably wouldn't want to translate it this way, you had <laughs> not our kind of magicians. It would be more like sorcerers, almost. They came from the east. So first we said uh, there were three groups of gifts, not three wise men. It, really, it's not the word wise. It's the word magi. We get our word magic or magician. Uh, number three, these men were counselors for kings that had great understanding, that knew astronomy and astrology. You can read the book of Daniel. And in Daniel, it talked about the satraps and Shadrach, Meshach, and, and Abednego. They were counselors to the king, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel would have been saved and more biblical, of course, but from the same group of people that were counselors to kings and were reportedly known for great understanding, but this understanding often would be based upon paganism, astrology, which would involve astronomy. Almost like a, like a president's cabinet. You have men that would help him to read the country, like Daniel, again, Shadrach, Abednego. However, these, from their background, and most of the time, of course, they would not be saved, and they would use pagan means of definition, uh, of trying to find out what God wanted to be done. Well, number four, it seems these are already saved, or they're about to be saved, because it says they've come to worship him. They know basically who he is, king of the Jews. They have great joy over what is happening. They fall to the ground, verse 11, they worship him, they give good gifts. And God seems to be caring for them. In verse 12, they're warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod. And so they take off and go back home. It seems they could very well be, be saved. Also realize, uh, this could be number five in terms of facts about the Magi. Most likely it wasn't just a couple of them. Okay, there could have been, there could have been three. Who knows? But there would have been a whole caravan, right? Because they had to have camels, they had to have food, they had to have water, they had to have clothes. They probably had had to have their own, at least a few soldiers with them, a few protectors with them. So it wasn't just three men on three camels. It would have been a, a larger group than that. And it appears that that they, and we'll talk about this a little bit later, that they knew something about the Lord. Now, what about this star? What is this star? It says in verse 2, We saw his star in the east, and have come to worship him. Verses 1, 2, and 7. 2, 7, and 9, rather, talks about this star. Now, there have been many ideas. Some believe it's Jupiter. Jupiter was leading the Magi. Some say Saturn, some say Venus, some say it was a supernova. Some say it was just a bright angel. Some say it was a comet. 
then what's the immediate reply to that? The immediate reply to that is that's impossible because if it was a real star or a supernova or a planet and it was moving around like that, the whole solar system would be going everywhere and would collapse. My response to that response is God can suspend natural law. God can suspend natural law. So if God wanted to start to do start to do that, that's up to him. Whenever there is a miracle, it's a suspension of natural normal law, like Jesus walking on water. Okay? God can do anything he wants to. Was it a star? I, honestly, I don't know. Some say it's the Shekinah glory of God, like in the book of Exodus, like in Ezekiel chapter 1. Some say it is Jesus Christ himself, because of Revelation twenty two sixteen says he's the bright morning star. So some want to make that connection. I don't think that would work, because at that time, God the Son, the second member of the Trinity, was incarnated. Okay. Exactly what is it? I don't know. But it was a blazing light. I'd probably lean more toward the Shekinah glory of God being very illuminated. Very well could be a star that God was suspending natural law in order to accomplish this great sign. And we'll get back to this, but they didn't worship the star, they worshiped Christ. It was a geographical marker for them. They weren't entertained by the star, period. There was more to it. It was pointing to Christ. So what can we learn from these foreigners? From these people that come from a pagan background, but were showing, it seems, some faith in Christ. So four brief things that we need to learn from these magi. Again, it seems they were receiving Christ. And Herod, the people of Jerusalem, and the religious leaders were rejecting Christ. Number one, don't get distracted by even good things. Prioritize your focus on Christ. The star was good. It was an amazing occurrence. Whatever was really happening, it was so magnificent and so different that these men, who most likely had studied astronomy, were saying, this normally does not happen. This is so different. We know the Old Testament. It seems they know the Old Testament because they say King of the Jews. And they might have known where it talks about in Genesis chapter 48, where there will be a star from the tribe of Judah. that a star will rise. And so maybe they're putting those two together. And we can see here, it says in verse 9, the star went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. It wasn't that they were seeing the star, worshiping the star, having joy over the star, but it's where the star led them to. 
the star had led them to who? To Christ. And so they were rejoicing over the end of their trip, that they had made it to their destination, and they were seeing the newborn king. And it says, again, if you look at verse 11, after coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down to the ground and worshipped who? Him. It doesn't say they fell down to the ground and worshipped and exalted and gave reverence and thanks to Mary. It says they fell down to the ground and worshipped worship Christ. They worshipped the Lord. They didn't worship Mary or Joseph, the star, animals, angels. They worshipped Christ. Herod was very concerned about the star. This is a star and king of the Jews. And exactly what time did the star appear? I want to know. These men were the star pointed to Christ. And we're going to worship Christ. They were focusing on worshiping him. And they were sacrificing for him. Are you focused on Christ? I think many of my problems that I have in terms of sin and personal relationships is because I focus enough on Christ. Seems simple, but I think it's truly a large answer to many of our sin problems is that we're not focused enough on Christ. We can be focused on even good things and get preoccupied by them instead of being focused on Christ. By God's grace, may we prioritize and focus on Christ. Now, how do we do that? That's number two. How do we do this? How do we focus more on Christ? Number two, develop more awe and alarm over Christ than anyone or anything else. Develop more awe and alarm over Christ than anyone or anything else. Scripture says, even in personal relationships, submit to one another in the fear of Christ. Ephesians chapter 5. I think that's verse 20 or 21. Now, when you look at these magi, I I say fear and alarm because you have Herod and you have Jerusalem troubled and they're, they're, they're panicking and apparently I, I might lose power, I might lose position, I, I might lose ease. There could be a lot of trouble. Um, if, it, if it's the true Christ, we're in big trouble. And then you have these magi and it says they fall to the ground. It's face down in the dirt. That's odd. That's alarm. <laughs> not before Mary, not before Joseph, not before Herod, not before Gabriel, not before Michael, but before Christ. That shows awe and alarm. And if you think about it, how long did they travel? Well, the text doesn't say, but they were going by foot or by camel, at least from... Iraq would have, to, would have taken three weeks. And they'd have gone through some dangerous places. And it wasn't that they had a freeway. 
They couldn't call Uber. They couldn't go on an airplane. They, they couldn't take a train. They didn't have restaurants along the way. They didn't have hotels like we have hotels today. And they brought expensive gifts. They even had to go through an area where there were the Parthenians. I think that's what they were called, Parthenians. And even Rome was afraid of them. They were great archers on horseback. They had to be very careful. They came a long way out of reverence to worship Christ. So getting... Don't get distracted is the negative side. Being alarmed and, you know, this is more positive in the sense of what to do. So we help ourselves not to get distracted by having this awe and this alarm, which is faith in Christ. Seeking to know Him. I think one thing we can see, even in verse 11, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, all valuable, all important in that day and age. They considered Christ to be more important than gold, frankincense, myrrh, time, effort, energy, and even their own lives. They put their own lives at risk. That's how they were focused on Christ. Number three, though there is this alarm and awe, they they fall in the dirt, in the dust. There's also joy. Faith also has this joy. You can see this in verse 10. They rejoice exceedingly with great joy. And it's not simply because they saw the star and they're rejoicing about the star. It's because the star was over the house of where... Christ was at. They were rejoicing because at the end of the road, they saw Jesus Christ. They were rejoicing over him. Now, in this text, in the Greek text, there's four terms here that describe this joy. The numerican standard says, rejoice exceedingly with great joy. The Greek text has four terms. Literally, you could say they rejoiced with joy great exceedingly, the New English translation says they shouted joyfully. There's no term for shout, but that's implied in the word rejoiced. The Christian Standard Bible says they were overjoyed beyond measure. They were beside themselves with joy. They had uncontainable joy. What song do we read? What, what song do we read? What song do we often sing? Joy to the world. Even joy, joy, joy. Why do we sing these songs? Because here you have the, the Magi. Is it because their trip's at an end? Oh, okay, we're done. It's not that. It's because the Savior, the King... They made all this trip not simply to say the king of only the Jews, but the Messiah, the Christ. Yes, king of the Jews, who is in fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. Psalm 22, Psalm 16, he's born. Verse 
there is this great joy they had. Philippians 4.4 says, Rejoice in the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 5.16 says, Rejoice always. Even 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8 says that we have joy in the one we do not see. Since 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit is what? Joy. There's never any time for sadness. The Bible says about Paul, he was sorrowful, but yet always what? Rejoicing. There is sorrow that will be part of our lives until we see Christ face to face. But there should always be this joy that is, I think, developing and growing within us. Well, it's not emotionalism. It's not being giddy. This should be this gladness in Christ that we have. In fact, I, I would venture to say the, the older, not simply the older I get, but the older I get in Christ, the more joy I should have. The more mature in Christ I get, I should have more true happiness. I think that's true about the Christian life. Because the more that I walk with Christ, and the more that I know Him, and the more I relate to Him, does He ever sin against me? No. Does He ever fail me? No. Does He ever not love me? No. Is He always good and kind and gracious to me? Yes. And even, I think, in an increasing way, I see Him more clearly throughout the years, and so that gives us, gives you, gives me greater joy. So verse, I mean, sorry, number three is display a geyser of gladness. Display a geyser of gladness. Now, maybe you might say, but I'm not a geyser. That's just my personality. You know, some people's personality is that they're just, hi, hello, how's it going? How are you? And they're always smiling. Even if they weren't a Christian, they'd be smiling. You know, just always being a, a, a geyser. So maybe you, you don't want to put a geyser of joy. But that's fine. You don't have to say a geyser. But maybe you want to be gurgling joy. Be a gurgler of joy. What do I mean? Have you ever seen a geyser? Have you been to Yosemite and seen the, the geysers there? <laughs> have you seen those? Well, also there they have what I call gurglers. You know, they have those lakes, they have those little ponds, and they're not geysers. But what are they doing? And they go all the time. They're, they're gurgling, bubbling all the time. But you know, I went to see in Yellowstone, Old Faithful Geyser, and it didn't blow. I traveled over 2,000 miles to see it blow, and it, it didn't blow. I had to wait extra long. It was unfaithful. It was. It, it, it didn't go. But I noticed all around with these other little holes of, of water and mud, some were clear, some were muddy, and they were going, gurgle, 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 bubble, 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 and they keep going. If you went today, they'd still be going, bubble, 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 bubble. So maybe 
Sometimes it may not be best to be a geyser. Boom! And blow up like that. It may be better to rejoicing always. Steady. And you're just always, not this extravagant way, but just gurgling, bubbling over with some joy because God is good to you in Christ. Number four, and we're almost done. Develop a little radical faith in Christ. Now, I worded that on purpose. It sounds kind of funny to me. Who would ever, what preacher, what missionary would say, develop a little radical faith? I should have said, develop radical faith. But instead, let us say this morning, let's just develop a little radical faith. What do I mean? Well, when you consider these magi, what did they truly, what did they have to go on? They traveled hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles to see God incarnate, the newborn king. What did they have to go on? They know about this. The Bible doesn't specifically say, but we know from biblical history who was over there in their area. Daniel, Nehemiah, Esther, Ezra, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. There was a whole witness for Yahweh in the Old Testament over there in that area. And so apparently, there was some influence for the true God in the East. And these kings, counselors, heard about it, heard the truth, and it seems that they were exercising some faith in Christ. They would have been in the Medio-Persia Empire. It could have been India. It could have been China. But they at least knew that there was a Messiah and that he deserved to be worshipped. That's what the text says. And they had awe and alarm. They fell down to the ground. They sacrificed for him, proved it by their journey, but also proved it by giving a type of tithe to him. I think it's symbolic of taking refuge in him. They were, Psalm 2, kissing the king. So that's a little faith. And by radical, they went all in with what they had, right? They went all in. Again, hundreds and hundreds of miles. And even they put their lives at stake with King Herod. Probably put their lives at stake many times on their journey. So in that sense, it was radical. So they had, perhaps, we might say, a little knowledge compared to our knowledge. So they had a little faith. But that little faith was a radical faith that did something great. So then, your faith might be tiny, but use it. My faith, I think, is tiny, but by God's grace, may I use it. Tiny faith can do great things. Tiny faith is stronger than the devil. Tiny faith is stronger than the devil. Scripture says, to God, resist the devil, and he will what? 
flee from you. If you have tiny faith, rejoice. That tiny faith can conquer Satan, and it will conquer Satan. Exercise it. Use it. Now, this doesn't mean that you have faith in faith. This means that you have faith in Christ based upon his word. It doesn't mean that God wants you to be a missionary to Bethlehem, necessarily. God may want you to be a missionary. Have these foreigners that were pilgrims for Christ going to the Holy Land, which is backwards in a sense. But it's because I think they had this little radical faith in Christ. What does that mean for you to have a little radical faith in Christ? Well, at least two things. Can you grow in your faith? Yes. May none of us ever say, I have great faith. I think if we say that, then God is going to bring an opportunity into our lives to prove our great faith. So let's be careful. Okay. Not saying we all say we have tiny faith, but we say, Lord, grow our faith. And then second, how can you have a little radical faith in Christ? You need to step out of your comfort zone. Every now and then, you have to step out of your comfort zone. These magi stepped out of their comfort zone. What do you need to do to step out of your comfort zone? Maybe it's to go to Maple Creek. Maybe it's to go witnessing. Maybe it's to go door to door. Maybe it's to preach in a prison. Maybe it's to go to the men's meeting. Maybe it's to go to a prayer meeting. Maybe it's to forgive somebody. Maybe it's to tell somebody, I love you, that is unlovable. I I don't know, but whatever is uncomfortable for you to do that is something that is righteous, then step out in faith and do that. 2 Corinthians 9.8 says that God will give you the grace to do that. He'll give you an abundant amount of grace to do that which you need to do for Him. As we have looked at the birth of Christ, how should you respond? Should you reject Christ or receive Christ? Everybody should receive Christ. Will you be like Herod and reject your king? Or will you be like these foreigners and receive the king? Again, Psalm 2 says, Kiss the son, how blessed are all who take refuge in him. Lord, we thank you for your word. May we not be like Herod and the religious leaders in Jerusalem. May we be like these Magi who fell down to the ground, worshipped Christ, gave importance to him and not to themselves, who were willing to leave power and position and even risk their lives. Lord, may we value Christ more than all things, Lord. We praise you and we give you glory. Amen.